0: Today, uh, Steve Christian will be teaching us. For those of you who don't know Steve, uh, he spent a number of years as a teaching elder in the PCA, and he taught Greek for a year at Covenant Seminary. Uh, he's been active in lay ministry for some time and recently retired to Clarksville to be near his daughter, Emily Tregesser and her family. Steve, we really appreciate your filling in at the last moment, and I look forward to hearing what God has for us through you today. Well we are certain, certainly glad to help out, and uh, we do pray for uh, Richard and Sarah that uh, God will take care of them in a very special way um, before we look at uh, god's word this morning let's just turn to him and ask for his blessing upon our time. Father, uh, you have said in your in your word, blessed are is the one who reads the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear and keep what is written in it. And we pray that we would hear today what you've written in your word and that we would be enabled to keep it. And we ask in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, amen. A number of years ago, I took a um, young adult group from our church on a winter weekend retreat, to uh, World's End State Park in the uh, Pocono Mountains in Pennsylvania. And I had arranged for a college buddy of mine who had become by that time uh, a Christian counselor to be a speaker for the weekend. And we had rented uh, ahead of time three cabins, uh, one for the men, one for the women, and then a smaller one for Bill and me. And they were advertised as rustic cabins. And you know what rustic means. It means no frills. It means floor, four walls, a roof, bunks, and a wood-burning stove. And so we car caravaned up to uh, World's End State Park, and as we started going up into the uh, Pocono Mountains, the snow started coming down, as did the temperature. And the only thing that I can remember from that weekend is that in the middle of the night... Bill and I woke up at about the same time and said, man, is it cold in here? It is really freezing in this cabin. And what had happened is that our fire had gone out. I mean, it was just dead, and we didn't have any more firewood. We had to kind of get dressed and all bundled up and go over to the men's cabin and sleep on the floor over with them. Uh, and that's kind of the way it is with rustic cabins. When the flame goes out, you got to leave. That's just the way it is. The flame goes out, and you're gone. And that's kind of similar to what we're going to see here in this uh, passage in Revelation chapter 2. And that is that when the, the fire of the love of a local congregation is extinguished, Jesus just very well may leave. And it's a warning that he gives to us. It's a warning that we need to hear as a congregation. So let's read um, these verses, Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. To the angel of church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance. And how you cannot bear those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and have found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at the first. If not... I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. In chapter 1 of the Revelation, John is instructed to write to the seven churches and then they're named and and if you have ever read uh, revelation one through three you know what their names are and the letter that he wrote to the seven churches is the entire book of revelation and you can see that from looking at chapter one and then at the end in chapter 22 but within that entire letter with, to the seven churches he includes seven messages or oracles each one directed specifically to one of those seven churches and to the needs of that particular church and this particular oracle is directed to um, the church at ephesus now these messages or oracles they follow a very very similar pattern all the way through it all seven of them are, are very much alike in their structure and in fact, it, you know, the passage practically outlines itself. And you can see the outline there if you've printed off your bulletin. You have a description of the Son of Man, because it's the Son of Man who uh, appeared to John in chapter 1 and gave him uh, the direction to write and to um, put down on, on, pap- on papyrus what it was that he saw. There's a description of the Son of Man, then there's a commendation for the church and what they're doing right. And then there's a rebuke uh, for, you know, things that they could do better. That's followed by uh, commands and warnings and, you know, how they can make things right after this. And, that's, and it ends with a promise to the overcomer. And all seven letters have that basic structure. Some of them, a couple of them miss the commendation. A couple of them miss the rebuke. But for the most part, that's the same Uh, structure to every single one of those oracles um, in the chapters 2 and 3 of the book of Revelation. And what we want to see this morning from this message to the church in Ephesus is this, that the Son of Man who always walks with us calls us to repent when our love falters so that we may always walk with Him. Uh, Let me repeat that. The Son of Man who always walks with us, calls us to repent when our love for him falters so that we may forever walk with him. So let's look, uh, first of all, at the description of the Son of Man, and that's in verse 1. The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. And almost all of, in almost all of these messages to the seven churches the description of the son of man is taken from the vision in chapter one and you can find the that description uh of the son of man earlier on in in chapter one and and so here he says it's the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands now if you've had any kind of exposure at all to the book of Revelation, you know that there are a lot of images and uh, that are really hard to understand, and some of them border on the bizarre. But these two are a little bit easier. And In fact, in chapter 1, he tells us that the seven lampstands are the seven churches. He just makes that equation right up front so that we know. And... A lampstand, though, is not a candlestick. A lampstand is a post with a hook on it, and houses back in those days, of course, didn't have electricity, but they did have lampstands, a post with a hook on them, and so that as you went from one room to another or how many rooms you had in the house, you could take the lamp and put it from one lampstand to another lampstand within the house. The lampstand didn't give the light. The lampstand just held the lamp or the light, which really, if you think about it, is a good image for the church. Yeah, we're not the light, but we are a place for the light to shine from. And then he says, and also in chapter 1, that the stars are the angels of the seven churches. That one's a little bit harder to understand exactly what is meant there. In fact, there are, there's no shortage of suggestions as to what is meant by the angels uh, of the seven churches. Um, but in the end, everybody pretty much comes out at the same point. I kind of think that the angels are some sort of representative or surrogate for the church, that this angel stands for the whole church as a body, as a corporate entity. And, and the way that we can tell that is by uh, some of the pronouns that are used. Now, I apologize for giving you a, a little bit of a grammar lesson here. I'm kind of a grammar geek. Uh, it just kind of comes with the territory. But um, all of the pronouns that are used in the letter to Ephesus, and then all the, and most of the letters as well, all of the pronouns are second-person singular, okay? Now, in English, we don't make a distinction between second-person singular and second-person plural. If I say you, well, then it's not known if I'm speaking to my wife, or if I'm speaking to everybody, because the singular and the plural are the same, you. But it's not that way in Greek, and it's not that way in a lot of other languages. If you took French, you know that there's tu and vous, or German, there's du and zi, and even in the Old English, there's thou and ye. And in the Greek, they make a distinction between the second person singular, you, and the second person plural, you. Every single pronoun in these seven verses, every single second person pronoun in these verses is singular. And so we need to see this letter as being written not to a bunch of individuals, but to a corporate entity, to a body, to a group, to a congregation as the whole. It's written to the angel, but he kind of stands in for the whole group. So we have the image of the, of the Son of Man. He holds the seven stars in his right hand, and he's walking among the lampstands. And he, this tells us that Christ, the Son of Man, is protecting us and that he's always with us. And here we see what we started out with, that the Son of Man always walks with us. And let's put that in the same terms as what this letter is written. The Son of Man always walks with his churches, with his congregations. And there are just thousands and millions of congregations, local churches all around the world. And Jesus Christ walks with and protects all of his congregations, all of his local churches. Then he comes to the commendation to them and he says, I know. And most of the letters have those words, I know. And to the church at Ephesus, he says, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance. These people were workers. This was a congregation of folks who got in there, who rolled up their sleeves, and who did things. They worked, and they worked hard at it, and they didn't give up at it. And not only was that the case, but they were very careful about the purity of the church and about the doctrine of the church. You know, like our vows say, they studied the peace and purity of the church and they tested the apostles who had come around. And, and those who were false, they found that they were false, that they were liars. And later on in, in verse 6, uh, uh, the Son of Man says, you have this also, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. And the people in the church of Ephesus um, listened very carefully to the words of Paul, who many years before said to the elders, and this is in Acts chapter 20, Paul's meeting with the elders of the church at Ephesus, and he says, "...pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock, in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood." I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away disciples after them. In a few years after that, Paul writes to his disciple and his child in the faith, Timothy. And in Paul's first letter to Timothy, uh, chapter 1, he says as I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. And so the church at Ephesus had been warned, and its leaders had been warned, and it seems like they took this seriously because... They guarded the faith. They tested those who were false apostles and found that they were indeed liars. And they also endured some hardship, it seems, for the sake of Jesus, which you see there in, in verse uh, 3, you're bearing up for my name's sake and have not grown weary. And there's a lot to commend this church for, and the Son of Man does give them all of the commendations for the good that they had done. There is, however, a but. And he brings up the rebuke next. And he says, I have this against you. And again, that I have this against you is found in a number of these oracles to the the seven churches here in chapters 2 and 3. And what he says to the church in Ephesus is this. You have abandoned your first love. Or you have abandoned your primary love, your most important love. Notice what he says is that they abandoned it. They didn't lose it, but they abandoned it. And what was their first love? Well, some people suggest that the first love was the love for other believers, that they had gotten so fixated on taking care of false doctrine or heresy in their midst that they became really uptight and, and didn't really love each other but were suspicious. That may be... I don't think that's the case, because if you don't love your fellow Christians, there's something more important that's missing. And I do think that when the Son of Man says, you've left your first love, or you've abandoned your first love, he was talking about himself, that they had abandoned their love for Jesus. Jesus. Now, someone might say, "How's that possible?" I mean look at all the great things they did. They're, they're guarding the peace of the church. they're guarding the purity of the church. They're, um, they're working hard. I mean, I mean, what a great congregation that is. You, you, couldn't, you couldn't ask for anything else. Well, w- let's compare what he says to this church in Ephesus to what Paul said to the church in Thessalonica. If you printed off your bulletin, you have the verses there of from 1 Thessalonians. So I'm going to I'm going to give you I'm going to give you my own quick and dirty translation of both of these passages just so that you see what it is that we're trying to compare here. So in Revelation chapter 2 he says I know your works I know your labor and I know your endurance. In 1 Thessalonians that it's the church in Thessalonica Paul says to them remembering always before our God and Father your work of faith and your labor of love and your endurance of hope. Those three words are exactly the same in the Greek language: your work, your labor, and your endurance. But in Thessalonica, it was not just work, but it was a work of faith. It was not just labor, it was a labor of love. And it was not just endurance, but it was an endurance of hope. And you see, faith, or to works work without faith is just self-striving and self-righteousness. And labor without love is just draining and discouraging and dreary. And endurance without hope is just meaningless, hanging in there by your fingernails. And faith, hope, and love are products of the Spirit. And where the Spirit is absent, the love of Christ either falters or is non-existent. And that's why he could say, that's why the Son of Man could say to this church at Ephesus, you've left your first love. It's, it, you have everything right on the outside. You're doing everything right, but there's something missing in the heart. You're not doing what you do out of a heart of love for me. You're doing it because... This is just your duty to do. Throughout my life, I've had a lot of different interests, and you know, I have followed a lot of different interests, and that can be good or bad. Um, you know, it 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 has its advantages and disadvantages. When I was a, when I was a boy, my uh, because I showed an interest in the planets, my dad bought me um, a telescope. And it was about a, if I remember right, two and a half, three feet long, uh, with a rangefinder on it, and I thought that was really cool. And then other things came along, and I forgot about my telescope. And wouldn't you know it that now that we've moved here to Clarksville, and my wife and I found out that we can audit classes for free at Austin P, and so we're taking a class in planetary astronomy. And I say to myself, why did I ever leave my telescope behind? And in grade seven, eight, and nine, I took French. And, and I gave it up in grade nine. Probably the, it was a D or an F that had something to do with my giving it up. <laughs> and, uh, and, and then in 2010, we started taking trips to France. And we've been there uh, a lot of times. And have just really loved it. And I said to myself, well, why did I give up my French? And um, shortly after, I met Connie. Her, her brother loaned me a uh, 35 mill- millimeter Minolta camera which well, I thought this was great and I was taking lots of pictures and you know after a while I kind of set it aside and and then on our first trip that we made together to Europe I'm seeing all these wonderful sights, and I'm thinking I've got all this little bitty yucky point-and-shoot why did I ever get rid of that camera and then I have taken up photography again, and French. And, you know, these examples, you know, they're not really very serious. I mean, probably most of us here have had a hobby or something like that that we've kind of let go. Um, we've left behind. So it's not real serious. But leaving behind or abandoning the love of another person to whom you owe love, that is more serious. And leaving or abandoning the love of Jesus, and that's very, very, very serious. And these examples that I mentioned in my own life, they also show us how easy it is to abandon something that we love. You can abandon something just kind of out of unconcern, out of not thinking about it. You don't have to make a conscious decision and say, I am going to leave behind today the love of Christ. You know, I don't, don't care anymore. It can be a very unconscious sort of thing. You gradually drift into it because, you know, there are more interesting things to take your attention like astronomy or French or photography or even theology. Reformed theology can make a good hobby without there being any love behind it. And so the Son of Man puts his finger on the problem there, the church in Ephesus, and he says, you have abandoned your first love. We need to remember that these messages were written primarily to the congregation as a whole, that they were written to the corporate entity, to the body, and we need to discuss this as a body. We need to discuss this and think about it together, and it... It may be a good thing for the community groups to discuss these questions. Is our work a work of faith? Is our labor a labor of love? Is our endurance an endurance of hope? Because Christ addresses this rebuke not to individuals but to a church body. And after, after the Son of Man uh, gives them his uh, rebuke, he says, well, here's what needs to come next. So he gives the commands and the warnings. And there are three commands. There's remember, repent, and do. Remember, he says, from where you have fallen. He doesn't say remember what you've forgotten. He says remember from where you have fallen. And And so to fail to love Christ is to fall, to go astray morally. And once we remember what a really wicked thing that is to abandon our love for Christ, he calls us to repent. He calls us to turn from our careless ways, to turn from our lack of love, to turn from the dying embers or the extinguished flame and to turn to the mercy of god in christ repentance repentance is a work of the holy spirit giving us grace to do those two things to turn from our careless ways and to throw ourselves upon the mercy of god in christ and then do now he says do the works that you did at first not just do more works but do those works which came out of a heart of faith. Do that labor which came out of a heart of love and endure because you have that hope. And those are, those are the commands. And so here we see the Son of Man who always walks with us calls us to repent when our love for him falters. But if not, he says, but if not, I will remove your lampstand. What he means is that you no longer will be a congregation. You'll no longer be one of my local bodies within the world. You'll just be gone. You will be no more. You'll be dead, useless. And that's really a solemn warning to a local church. He's saying, I will remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Uh, one, of, one of my, uh, not one of them, my favorite city in, uh, in France is the city of Lyon. I just, I just love it. It's, it's just the coolest place. And on one of the times that we were there, I was looking down a street that I hadn't looked down before. I don't know why. But I saw down there the unmistakable architecture of flying buttresses, which meant a church. And I thought, well, I've never seen that one before. Um, let me go take a closer look at it. So I start to go, try to go around it, you know, on the city blocks. I mean, Lyon is a is a major urban area. So I started going around in a clockwise direction, and as I went around, there's apartment buildings, apartment buildings, apartment buildings, more apartment buildings, and I saw no way to get to it uh, at all. I thought, well, at one point, well, maybe if I went through that locked gate and through the parking lot that the locked gate protects. I might be able to get to the church, but it was a locked gate. And then as I continued going around, I went down a long set of steps because the, the building was built on the brow of a hill, and um, Lyon has some very steep hills in it. As I got to the bottom, there's a wide open plaza there, and there's a stone wall probably 20 meters high. And at the top of that, there's a fence. And if I moved back, I could look over. And I could see the front of the church building there. But obviously, you know, you, know, you can't climb up that stone wall. And as I kept going around, the, uh, the, the uh, ground started going back up. And the wall was getting smaller and smaller until I almost got to where I started. And there was a, uh, uh, the fence continued, but it was a tall fence. And where the gate was, it had a big, big, big chain around it, and a padlock on the chain. And the only sign of life there were a bunch of feral cats that were in the garden of this property there. There's just no way to get into it. And if you've ever visited Europe, you know that almost every church, at least in France, is open for people just to walk right in. You and I both know that the church is not a building, The church is the people. But I have to really believe that with that particular building, there weren't any people either. Maybe a few church mice, but no people. And that was a good example, I think, of a church. Even though the building stayed, the lampstand had been removed. There was nothing there to show the light of Christ or the light of the gospel. It was just gone. And finally, there's the promise uh, to the one who conquers. Uh, And you see that in in verse 7. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Now, to conquer means, at least for, for John here, to conquer means to overcome whatever issue faces that particular church. So in this case, it's to the one who conquers. And it's at this point, I think, that the Son of Man begins to move away from the, the body imagery to speak to individuals as individuals. Because after all, a body is made up of individuals. And if the church as a body is going to repent, it has to start with individuals. And so he says, to the one who conquers, the one who overcomes... I will give to eat of the tree of life. This is the same idea as what we find in the garden of Eden where there is a tree of life and that if they and God said if they ate from the tree they'd live forever and ever. And the tree of life is a wonderful illustration of that promise that we would live forever or have eternal life. And that's promise to the one who conquers, to the one who overcomes. You might think, oh, boy, that sounds a little strange. I thought there was faith involved here when it came to eternal life. Um, I just want to quickly remind you that um, the book of James tells us that faith without works is dead. And as you read through the letters or these oracles in the uh, chapters 2 and 3 of the book of Revelation, you see a very, very tight connection between faith and works. And you see how they go together hand in hand. And, 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 and so he's very upfront about this. Yeah, the one who overcomes is the one who has faith, but he's also the one who overcomes and conquers this problem of love faltering or becoming extinguished. Not only will the one who conquers eat from the tree of life, but it's the tree of life, In the paradise of God. Uh, About two to three hundred years before Jesus was born, a group of scholars in uh, Alexandria, Egypt, uh, got together to do a translation of the Hebrew Old Testament into the Greek language. And the legend has it that there were 70 of these scholars and that they did it in 70 days there may, there may have been 70 scholars but 70 days that was probably pushing it but because of the the tradition or legend of the 70 this greek translation of the hebrew old testament is called the septuagint and in the septuagint the greek translation the word paradise is used a lot of times and every time that our Bible would say, which is translated from the Hebrew, but every time that our Bible would say the Garden of Eden, the Septuagint has paradise. Every single time, bar none, the Septuagint always calls the Garden of Eden paradise. Here's the interesting thing. In Genesis, the tree of life was in a garden. If you go to Revelation 22, the tree of life is in the city in the New Jerusalem by the river of living water. And what the garden and the city have in common is that both are places where God walks with his people. And so we see that the Son of Man who always walks with, with us, calls us to repent when our love for him falters so that we may forever walk with him. Let's pray. Our great God and our heavenly Father, may we have ears to hear what the Spirit says to the churches. May we not be deaf May we not be without understanding, but may we hear and listen and apply. And we ask in the name of and for the sake of our Lord Jesus, the Son of Man, amen.